How are we all doing on this uh, very cold day? Oops, hang on, let me just do this. Where am I? Damage it. Oh, wasn't that great? Wasn't the praise and worship great? Isn't it lovely to come together? Isn't it lovely to have the rain, even though it's so cold? Isn't it lovely to be able to get together as God's family this morning? Um, so, we are in week two of our series. Who can tell me what our series is on? Well, you, know, you, you, you shouldn't be allowed to answer. Relationship goals, that's right. We're in week two of relationship goals. And last week, Sharon was speaking. Who can remind me what she was speaking about last week? Okay, so there's going to be a test next week. I'm going to get up and ask you what I spoke about this week, all right? Um, so last week, Sharon spoke about relationship and community as a bit of an introduction. And next week, uh, we've got Corbin. I always love listening to Corbin's sermons. So next week, we have Corbin speaking to us, and he's going to be speaking to us about dating. He's going to be giving us all his hot tips and tricks on how to pick up. And he's going to be giving us his blow-by-blow guide on how to find the perfect mate, perfect partner. How does that sound? Now that I've completely stitched him up in in your expectations for what he's going to be talking about, good luck, Corbs, next week. Unfortunately, he's not here, but you guys can pass the message on. Oh, he is. He is here. Awesome. There you go, Corbs. Good luck, mate, next week. I was hoping you wouldn't be here. I didn't see you earlier. (laughs) Um, And today... We're, uh, we're actually going to be speaking about something a little bit different. Today, we're going to be speaking, pri- I want to be speaking primarily to the singles who are here. Um, we're going to be talking about what it means to be single. We're going to be talking about being single um, and also what the Bible says about the single lifestyle. Um, when we talk about singles, um, I guess there's a whole bunch of different types of singles out there. You know, you've got your younger singles who have never married. There's a whole bunch of youth in this church. Uh, You've got your older singles who have never married. Uh, You've got people who are widowers, who have lost their life partner. Uh, You've got divorcees. You know, you've got all sorts of different singles out there. So we're going to be talking to everyone in that single category. And for anyone here who's married as well, I think you'll probably, I've tried to just hide some little nuggets of truth for, uh, for the marrieds in the, in the audience today as well. So there should be a little bit of something for everyone. Um, I did a lot of reading on being single. It's been a little while since I was single. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, if you take out, let's say, the first six years of my life when I really don't remember that much and look at what remained, um, I've basically spent about uh, three-fifths of my life single and about two-fifths of my life married. So we're almost getting to that halfway mark, which is an interesting point. Um, And I've I've been doing a lot of reading. I've been talking to a few people as well in in that space. And generally speaking, singles, I've found, are viewed by themselves, as well as by others in society, um, often as lacking something. The thing that is, I guess, uh, really challenging about being single is that the world and our culture says all these things about what it means to be single. All these things, it it plants all these fears, it plants all these expectations, it says all these things about 
um, what it means to be single. The world says a whole bunch of things. The world says things like, if you're single, you're missing out. The world says, if you're single, you may never feel complete. The world says things like, if you're single, you could be lonely for the rest of your life. The world says, if you're single, you may never be truly happy. The world says, if you're single, you might be kind of lonely for the rest of your life. That's pretty harsh. What the world says to singles and about singles and about being single is pretty harsh. And that's what the world says, but the Word of God actually says something completely different about being single. And that's what we want to have a look at this morning. Uh, You know, Jesus, one of my favorite quotes in all the Bible, Jesus in John 10 says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. And he said that to everyone. He said that irrespective of your relationship status, whether you're single or married or, you know, whatever, I have come that you may have life and you may have life to the full. Did you know that the Bible actually says that singleness is a gift from God? The world says all this stuff about singleness, and the Bible says that singleness is actually a gift, a gift from God. That's one of the things it says. That's how the Bible talks about singleness. Not like it's some sort of second-class status, but rather it's a gift. Have you ever received a gift, maybe Christmas or birthday? Have you ever received a gift, and you've, uh, you've sort of looked at the gift, and you thought, oh, that's not what I wanted? <laughs> Have you ever had a gift like that? I, have you ever done Secret Santa? I love Secret Santa. Now, there are all sorts of rules for Secret Santa, and some Secret Santas don't necessarily fit with the spirit of Christmas and giving, right? So we were playing Secret Santa this one time, and it was a version of Secret Santa where if you get a gift that you... that uh, Sorry, if you can choose between choosing a gift from the Santa, or if someone else has a gift that you would really like, you could steal their gift. Have you done that before? Yeah, lots of people nodding, right? So this particular game of Secret Santa was starting to get, yeah, it was starting to heat up. And all the gifts, luckily, were pretty good, but there was one gift that nobody wanted. Someone had gone to Costco and got this massive bottle of um, tomato sauce. And amongst all these other gifts of, you know, there were different nice foods and things for the home and and practical gifts and whatever else. And there's this massive bottle of tomato sauce. And that was the gift that everyone kept passing around. No one wanted the gift. Finally, someone got stuck with the gift at the end of the game. And to their surprise, when they had a closer look at it, someone had actually cut the bottom out and filled the whole thing up with the nicest chocolates you could get. Have you ever had a gift that you thought, no, 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 that's what I want? Well, the Bible says that singleness is actually like a gift, and there's actually more to it, maybe, than sometimes meets the eye. Now, um, I want to have a look at a few, uh, or one particular passage from the Bible this morning, 
and it's found in 1 Corinthians. Now, what happened, just to give you a little bit of context, um, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the believers, the Christians, um, in the city of Corinth. Corinth was in Macedonia or in, in Greece, that sort of area there. And these guys had written a letter to Paul saying, given our environment, how should we be living as Christians? What should we be doing? There's all this stuff going on around us and we're not really sure what we should do. And so this letter, 1 Corinthians, is Paul's response to their request, giving them the advice that they want and answering their questions. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was a bustling city. It was on the coast, on the, on the Mediterranean Sea, and it was a, a huge trade town. It had a massive port in it, and there was lots going on. You know, there were ships coming and going, and all sorts of produce and products from all around the world, all around the Mediterranean Sea. And it was a, it was a rich city, Corinth. And you would have all these sailors coming in and going out. And like many big port towns historically, it also had a very vibrant prostitution industry. But not just that, it was an exceedingly pagan city and it had a couple of really big temples where they practiced all sorts of pagan sexual rituals and rites. Corinth was... It was an extremely perverse city, let's just say that. And so you've got this little band of believers living in this environment, and they write to Paul and they say, what do we do? How should we live? How should our married people be living? How should our singles be living? And so Paul responds to that. And so let's just pick that up. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 7, verse 6. And this is where we start. This is what Paul says. It should be up on the screen for you. Here we go. This is Paul writing. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish, I wish that all of you were as I am. Now, Paul is single. Did you know that about the Apostle Paul? He says, I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. But to Paul, his singleness was actually, he considered that a gift from God. Now, Paul talks a lot about spiritual gifts. If you read through the Bible, he's, he has a lot to say about spiritual gifts. And it's interesting to see that in his mind, his singleness is actually a spiritual gift. And I want, you to, I want to draw your attention to something else. He says, I wish that you were as I am. Can you see um, Paul's contentment in his singleness? It comes through, as we keep reading through the rest of the passage, it'll keep coming through as well. But Paul is teaching here that um, where you are in your circumstances in life, that's God's gift to you. Whether you're single, whether you're married, where you are in your situation in life, that's God's gift to you. And you should look for ways to be content in that. Now, there probably is a caveat to that. Um, if you're a widower or if you're divorced, he is not saying the loss of a spouse is a gift. Absolutely not. That's, that's heartbreaking. But what he is saying is that singleness itself can be a gift. And he gives some reasons around that that we're going to have a look at. So he keeps writing. Let's keep reading in verse 8. Now to the unmarried 
and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. So there we have that contentment coming through again in, in what he's saying there. But Paul, really early on in the passage, what does Paul jump straight to? Paul jumps straight to burning with passion. Paul jumps straight to sex. So let's just deal with the elephant in the room and talk about sex. All right, let's just go straight there like Paul does. Okay, so let's just start by pointing out the fact that Corinth, I've already explained what Corinth was like. And there is today in our culture, I would say as well, this pervasive lie that is so prevalent and so powerful, you can't blame anyone for buying into it. Not really. There is a lie that sexual expression and sexual experience are necessary for human flourishing. We see it all around us. You know, the, the pervasive, persistent lie um, is there, and we're drinking it in through every commercial, through social media, through magazine articles, through TV shows. It's all around us. And, and this whole concept is a worldly and Freudian concept. It's certainly not a Christian worldview, and don't ever think that it is. And it's so pervasive that just watching TV during family viewing time you know, you can see ads with images that not 40 years ago probably would have been considered almost hardcore porn. Like, that's how culture has changed over just a, a short period of history. And it's not easy for singles to navigate this space in our overly sexualized culture. It's not. But Paul is saying that sexual temptation is not a sufficient reason in itself to get married. And burning passion isn't a sufficient reason to compromise your integrity through unwise and ungodly sexual decisions. He's saying that. Now, my oldest daughter just became a teenager. In the last few months. And I can assure you that as she begins dating, I will be taking a very keen interest in any young boy who might, um, might think about dating her. Um, a very keen interest to make sure that he treats her with the respect that she deserves. Whether he treats her with respect, the respect that she deserves because he respects her or because he fears me, I really don't care. But I'm going to make sure it's one of those, okay? And I remember um, I was sitting in the train. This was a while ago, actually. This is a long time ago now. I was sitting in the train just minding my own business and all of a sudden these two young guys came on. They would have been probably, I don't know, I'm guessing, 17, 18. They were driving, so that's why I'm thinking. They, they, looked, they looked younger. And, um, and they came onto the train just sort of right near me and, and they started talking. And one guy said to the other guy, so tell me, how was your day last night? What happened? And the other guy turned and he goes, well, like, I drove around to her place to pick her up, 
It was the first time I'd met a family, so I had to go in and get her, and I knocked on the door. Apparently, she said that, that her parents wanted to meet me, so I had to go out and knock on the door. Her little brother opened the door and, um, and invited me in, so I came into their living room, and there was a mom and, and a sister and a brother, and I sat down, and, and we just had a bit of a chat. We are making a bit of small talk, and they're all joking around, and they're saying, oh, you know, Dad will be home soon, and be careful, and, um, and watch out for Dad's shotgun, and, you know, that we just small talk and stuff. And then Dad told me, oh, yeah, what happened next? You're a big guy. <laughs> and Dad came home, and, yeah, no, I mean, he was all right. He was cool. We were chatting and, and stuff, and, and then it came time for us to go. And, and so we started walking down the hallway towards the front door, and all of a sudden the Dad calls out and says, what time are you going to have a home? And he sort of caught me off guard, and I was like, oh, well, um, oh, well, and he said, 10 o'clock, Awesome. And he said, I was just reaching for the door handle to leave, and I noticed they had an umbrella stand in the corner by the front door, and it literally had a 12-gauge shotgun sitting in the corner up against the front door. And his friend's jaw dropped, and he said, what did you do? And he said, man, I had it home by 9.30. Like, she was there. I laughed. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. Um, and, and sexual temptation or burning passion isn't a sufficient reason to compromise the integrity that you have as a person for any sort of ungodly or unwise decisions around your sexual purity. Keep that in mind. And guess what, singles? There's something else. Even after marriage, you can still burn with passion and you can still have inappropriate sexual desires. Marriage doesn't fix that. It just makes it more complicated. That's why self-control is so important. The Bible talks a lot about that. Marriage doesn't fix that. Well, some people say, I'm lonely. Um, you know, I, I need to get married because I'm lonely. And, and that's a... You know, that's a big factor. Absolutely, it is. One of the biggest challenges for singles is loneliness. It may be actual loneliness, or it may be anxiety or fear about perceived loneliness. Either way, it, it's, a, it's real and it's big and, and it's a big factor in the, in the equation. It's that whole what if question. It's that whole what if there is that person out there, the one who can satisfy all of the longings of my heart. What if? But you know what? Everyone, at some point or another, struggles with loneliness. It's not just singles. Marriage doesn't fix that necessarily either. Everyone, at some point, is going to struggle with loneliness. And one reason why divorce rates are so high is because marriage doesn't always fix loneliness. Often people who are far more lonely after marriage because when someone who is so intimate with you becomes indifferent to you, that's goal-crushing. But that longing that we feel for a relationship, that longing that we feel not to be alone is actually pointing to something beyond ourselves. It's actually pointing to something greater. We were created for a relationship, and the fear of loneliness 
will only disappear through a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. And it will only go forever when Jesus comes again and takes us to be with him in heaven. Until then, whether you're single or married, there will be times in your life when you'll disappear away. And Paul's saying, don't compromise your sexual integrity trying to fight your fears of missing out on heaven. Paul's saying, don't rush into marriage thinking that it's the solution. Single or married, Paul's saying, cling close to Jesus and find your contentment. And we see it. Paul is content. He's found contentment in his relationship with Jesus, in his brothers and sisters in the church. He's found contentment in serving Jesus in his calling as an apostle. He's found contentment in his singleness. So let's read on. Verse 26. He keeps going. He says, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Well, don't seek to be released. But if you're free from such a commitment, don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, I want you to hear this, singles. <clears throat> if you do marry, you haven't sinned in virgin. If you, have, if you marry, you haven't sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Why are you all laughing? <laughs> you will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you from this. Wow, is that an odd thing to say or what? All right. And I'm not just talking about in-laws here, okay? There's a little bit more to it than this. Paul, first and foremost, Paul was never against marriage. Even though it might sound like it, Paul wasn't against marriage. Marriage was still an institution created by God, and it was a good institution created by God. All right? But don't make marriage your idol. For many people, you see it out there in social media and magazines, for many people, marriage is their idol. Don't make marriage your idol. Marriage isn't everything. Those who marry, Paul says, you're going to have troubles. You're going to have complexities. Have you ever heard the old saying, why do married men generally die younger than women? Because they want to. That's something my dad taught me. Um, so what trouble is Paul talking about? Let's just have a look at this for a moment. He's talking about this kind of trouble. He's talking about the trouble that comes when you take one sinner, one imperfect human being with all their fears, with all their insecurities, with all their desires, with all their dreams, with all their wants, and you take one sinner and you make them live intimately close with another sinner. Now that's trouble. That's a recipe for trouble. That's a recipe for double trouble. Marriage is an intensely intimate relationship. It's the most um, intimate relationship of all human relationships. And while in many ways it's the most fulfilling of human relationships, it also creates this ever-present tension in married life. Now the word that Paul actually uses in the passage for trouble actually means pressure. It's actually the Greek word that they used to use to describe when they were pressing the grapes to make juice. That's the word he uses. Right? You're underfoot 
and you're being squeezed until the juice pops out of you. That's the trouble he's talking about. And what you've got in marriage is two sinners pressed together intimately and squeezed tightly. I want you to think about that, all right? And occasionally, when in that circumstance, occasionally, what comes out is anger. Occasionally, there's selfishness or childlessness or just plain out stupidity or dishonesty or deception or pride or thoughtlessness or overindulgence or laziness and not doing your part or self-centeredness or that horrible sin that some husbands commit occasionally, forgetfulness. Marriage is the great exposure. You know, you might be able to hide some of those things about yourself that you don't want your friends seeing. But when you get married, there is no way of hiding whether it's you or they. They will find out and they will most likely let you know that they know. Before I got married, there was a lot about myself that I didn't know. There's a lot I know now about myself that I didn't know before I got married. And I've got Melissa to thank for, thank for that. She pointed out a few things in the show. So, for example, before I was married, I never even realized that I have a nervous tweak. I'll do this. Just every now and then. You know what I'm doing? Because I never even thought about it until she uh, pointed it out to me. I'm just pulling the side of my pants up. That's what I'm doing. I don't know when it started. Probably in school sometime. I'll just do that. And when we first got married, that used to bug her no end. Absolutely no end. You know what else I learned about myself after I got married? I learned that in that moment, just before I fall asleep, very regularly, I will suddenly and violently jump. which can be a little bit annoying for your partner when she's in that space where she's almost asleep as well. Um, sorry? I got that from my mother. There you go. And you know what? It's not just me. Uh, a, a very, well, actually a relative, a very close person to me um, tells the story as well. Well, actually he doesn't. His, his wife tells the story about how in the just the first few days after they got married, she discovered something similar about him as well. But in his case, what he used to do was sleep on his side, and just before he went to sleep, that's weird, just before he went to sleep, he would, would um, quickly and strongly and violently bring his knees up to his chest. <laughs> and this came out because about, it was after the honeymoon, we saw him probably a couple of weeks later, and she had all these big blue bruises down the sides of her legs. And we're like, yeah, hello. <laughs> like, what happened on your honeymoon? And um, yeah, and the story came out. So it's not just me. I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned that it is apparently physically impossible for me to drink hot drinks without sweating. And I tell you what, it's if you were around us at Big Camp, there were times when Melissa would physically pick up her chair and walk away and sit elsewhere if I was drinking a hot drink at Big Camp. Marriage is the great exposure. 
And the statistics show that some of the most miserable people in the world are not single. Some of the most miserable people in the world are married. And that doesn't mean that all married people are miserable. Absolutely not. I'm not. I'm happy. I'm thrilled. It's great. But I tell you that the potential for misery in marriage is greater than the potential for misery when you're single. And that's because when you're single, there's only one person who can make you miserable. And the only thing worse than wishing you were married is wishing you didn't have one. Well, all marriages have difficulty, they have hardship, they have sacrifice, because you have these two imperfect people pressed really tightly together. And then, just in, just in case that wasn't enough, you know what happens? They have children. And then all of a sudden, you've got all these other little sinners pushed into the crush. And it just gets even more challenging and more complex. And if you're single, don't look to marriage as a solution for your problems. It will probably be a multiplication marriage is a good institution created by god but it's not necessarily any better if you're single and what makes a difference is who you are and who you bring into your situation whatever that might be single or married so how do you define who you are well, the world says that if you're single, you're missing something and that you need a partner to be complete and that you should be searching for someone and there are all those friends of yours who try to match you up. The world says that if you're single, maybe you're missing out. The world tells us to define ourselves through our jobs, through our financial status, through our success, through our grades, through our appearance, through what other people say about us, and also through our relationship status. That's what the world says. That's what it teaches us day by day. That's what we see all the time. But what happens to our identity when we experience failure? Or when we lose someone's failure, uh, favor? Or when perhaps we don't start doing as well as our job? Or when something else happens, the very foundation of our identity is shaken and we suddenly have to define ourselves by something or someone else. And we can't have a meaningful identity when our identity is based on external things because when circumstances change, our identity constantly starts changing as well. And that just doesn't work. But what would it look like to base our identity on the way God sees us? What would that look like? You know, one of the richest passages in the Bible about our identity is actually in Ephesians. Paul wrote it as well. It's in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. And in this passage, Paul explains the new identity given to every person in Christ. I just want to throw it up really quickly. Let's just have a really quick look at this when we talk about identity. It says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace 
that he lavishes on us. In him, we were chosen. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are ready according to ephesians 1 we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing we have been chosen adopted redeemed forgiven graced lavished and unconditionally loved and accepted that's who we are we are pure we are blameless and we are forgiven that's who you are when you are in christ these aspects of your identity can never be altered it is who you are it can never be changed by what you do because it is who you are and it's not based on you it's based on him it's based on god and oftentimes what happens is that a gap exists between intellectually knowing that god says that i have this identity and actually living out Don't let the changing world define who you are. Your identity is set in God's eyes as a son or daughter of the Most High God. So if we jump back to 1 Corinthians, we're almost done. And Paul just goes a little bit further. And I just want to bring out a couple more points. In verse 29, he says, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that The time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do not, and those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep, and those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed by them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Paul's This is Paul's way of trying to orientate our hearts and our minds to eternity and not just the cares of this world and our immediate circumstances. There is a future that we are closer to now than we have ever been closer to before. And we need to orientate our minds and our hearts and our souls to the second coming of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is trying to draw our hearts out of our present circumstances, trying to draw our eyes off ourselves and onto Jesus. It's kind of simple. Paul's trying to say, hey, look up. Look up and live in such a way as to show that you understand that there's a greater reality and a greater purpose for your life than your relationship with God. trying to say let's live for jesus and jesus people and he takes this a step further all right we're going to finish on this paul says in verse 32 i would like you to be free from concerns an unmarried man is concerned about the lord's affairs how he can please the lord an unmarried woman is concerned about the lord's affairs how she can please the lord but a married man or woman is concerned about the affairs of this world how they can please their husband or wife Um, And their interests are divided. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. In undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul went on mission trips. He 
was regularly arrested and thrown into prison. He was regularly flogged. He was shipwrecked. He went hungry so many times in his life. Do you think he could have effectively lived that lifestyle as an apostle if he'd had a wife and young children? Do you think he could have put them through all of that? No. And that's the point that Paul's uh, Paul's trying to make here. He's talking about that divided mind and heart. You see, there's a shrinking focus about our lives. When you get married, there's a shrinking focus. You, you start to ask questions about, well, how, how are we doing? How am I doing as a father? How am I doing as a husband? How are you doing as a wife? How are the kids doing? You start to get anxious about how, how they're going as well. And you carry all these anxieties and concerns and complexities and challenges around with you. I feel that as a husband. I feel that as a father. And I think probably most married people will, will agree with that. There's a lot more going on. You have a shrinking focus. And Paul says, as single people, I want you to not have a shrinking focus. I want you to have a broad focus, not narrow. What you have in married life is your shrinking focus of a particular set of people. First and foremost, and they should be in your mind first and foremost. But Paul says that in singleness, the advantage, the big advantage of singleness is that you have this undivided devotion to God. You have an undivided mind. You have an undivided heart. You have a breadth of focus that is greater than the narrowed focus that any married person can be. You've got something special. The single life is not empty. It is full of opportunity. That's what Paul's saying. You have the room, you have the time, you have the the ability to bless other people. You can do things that married life makes so much more difficult. You can serve. You can give. You can train. You can mentor. You can lead a small group. You can minister. You can help with breakfast. You can take Bible studies for the kids at the school with the chaplains. You can go on storm code trips. You can lead a kids' ministry group. You can help out with praise and worship. You can start a brand new ministry if God's putting something on your heart. Or you can minister to the families at Northline Christian College over here. You can be a counselor at summer camp. There is so much more that you can do with your undivided mind, with your undivided heart, with your undivided devotion. And I encourage you to maximize the gifts that God has given you. If you're single, maximize the gifts that God has given you at this stage in your life. Make the most of them. Start to lead. Throw yourself into God's work. Throw yourself into the ministry of the church. Bite off more than you can chew while you still can. And I'll make you a deal. You lead for Jesus, you'll fold for Jesus. How's that? The problem with singleness isn't what the Word says about singleness, it's what the world says about singleness. The world says if you're single, you're missing out. If you're single, you're never going to feel complete. If you're single, you're going to be lonely. If you're single, there could be something wrong with you. That's what the world says. But God says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have life to the full, abundant life, regardless of your relationship status. 
given us is a gift from God, and you can be single, and you can be tense, and you can be happy. You can be single and not alone in Jesus and in the church. And the community that we're building here at Refresh Church means that if you're single, you shouldn't ever feel alone. Not really. And I want you to remember that your family is the whole church. You know, Jesus said, who are my brothers and sisters? Who is my mother? Is it not those who belong to my father? And my dream is that here at Refresh, we're going to be able to build a community where there should be no people that really feel lonely, where we're single and happy and stuff. My dream is that there really shouldn't be any people at Northpine family who feel lonely. How cool would that be to have that kind of community with that kind of ministry? Wouldn't that be great? And what that means is that each one of us, as best we can, we need to, en- we need to engage with visitors. We need to open our homes. We need to open our lives. We need to learn from one another. We need to lean into the high points and the low points of each other's lives. We need to be there to support each other. Married men, married women, with older men, older women, with the children of our church, with the singles of our church, all leaning in together. Is that something you want for Refresh? Would that be cool or not? Yeah? All right. Well, the question then is, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to pursue that? How are we going to grow that together? And it starts with each one of us. It starts with how you respond to this sermon. And it starts with whether or not you remember anything of this sermon next week. So I would encourage, if you're single, if you're not single, to invest more into the service of God more into the community that is refreshed through your church. Can we pray? Dear Lord, um, it's an interesting series. It's an interesting series to, to think about the singles amongst us, to think about the relationships between all sorts of different types of people that, that we come together with as a church and the people that are around us in our communities. And I pray a special blessing on, um, on all of our singles, our young people, our older singles, our divorcees, our widows. I pray a special blessing. I pray a special blessing on anyone who uh, may feel lonely. I pray a special blessing on anyone who may be um, feeling fear for relationship reasons. You tell us that perfect love drives out fear and that you want to draw that perfect love back. And I just pray that each one of us would seek that closer and deeper relationship with you, and that we would follow your leading in reaching out to your church and to our community.